Well, if you've been with us, you'll know that the Apostle Paul has in Philippians 3 been giving us his spiritual autobiography, and not because he likes talking about himself, but because he hopes that by illustrating from his life, that illustration or his life experience might prove helpful to the Philippians. And I trust to us, the Philippians were being infiltrated by a group of false teachers who were seeking to enslave them all over again to a works righteousness. These teachers, the Judaizers, said that Jesus was not enough, that what was necessary was to add Moses. What was needed was to heed the rituals and regulations of the Mosaic law. That was the way to please God. That was the way to garner God's favor and ultimately merit eternal life and to maintain their salvation. And Paul reminds the Philippians that righteousness is found in Christ alone, that it is a gift of God that is given from God to the one who has faith in Christ I've been going over this with young people in our baptism class again. You need two things in order to be saved, just speaking generally here, but you need two things. You need forgiveness of the sins that you have committed and will commit in this life. That's part of it. But you also need positive righteousness. You need not only forgiveness, but you need to be clothed in a righteousness that you cannot earn by your own working. It's a righteousness that must be given to you from God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who did fulfill the law in every aspect, and therefore he could render himself as a substitute for your sins in dying and absorbing the wrath of God that was due for you, and he could provide to you that perfect obedience that you could never earn on your own, that you could never accomplish on your own. And that's why Paul said, having turned from his former confidence in his own performance, he was now trusting in the righteousness of God through faith he wanted to gain Christ and to be found in him. He was speaking of justification. He wanted to be incorporated into Christ and gain the benefits of that forgiveness and that righteousness. Having been made right with God, having his sins forgiven, and having that pure and perfect righteousness of Christ imputed to his account. But what we saw last week was that Paul was not satisfied merely to be justified. He was not satisfied to simply have punched his ticket to heaven. No, Paul wanted more. He wanted to know Christ. And he wanted to grow in Christ's likeness. And we said in a word that Paul not only wanted to be justified through faith in Christ but he wanted to be sanctified in knowing Christ and being increasingly conformed to the image of his Savior. These two things, justification and sanctification, go hand in hand. And they are the very demonstration that God has in fact saved somebody. 
Now, we live in an age where the church teaches that those two things can be separated, that one can, in fact, be in Christ and be justified and at the same time have no inclination whatsoever toward being sanctified or growing in Christ's likeness. It's as if you punch your ticket to heaven, you take a seat on the train, and it just carries you to your destination, at which point then you will be made into the likeness of Christ. I was reading recently from one of the leading study Bibles and its commentary on the closing verse of 2 Peter, that is 2 Peter 3.18, which reads this way, quote, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and to the day of eternity, amen. The study Bible commenting on the first part of that verse, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The study Bible commenting on that said, quote, the scriptures reveal four stages of spiritual growth in the Christian life. There's what they called the baby stage, then there's the little child stage, and then there is the young man stage, and finally culminating with the father stage. And they tried to defend each of those stages and make general assessments of each stage along the way. I'm going to not take up all of those stages. I'm just going to read to you what they wrote in the study Bible about the baby stage. Quote, a baby thinks only of itself. And if denied the things desired, it will raise a rumpus. It seeks its own. Its feelings are easily hurt and it is often jealous. A baby lives to be served it never serves. It drinks milk. It cannot eat strong meat. It cries, but it never sings. It tries to talk, but it never makes sense. Now, here's the part I really want you to know. These infant characteristics are so prominent in the lives of many church members. They have been born into the family of God, but have failed to develop spiritually. These are spiritual babies. They are carnal Christians. Now, the Bible clearly acknowledges, doesn't it, that we move in the Christian faith from immaturity to maturity. There's no question about that. But the problem with this commentary is not so much where it starts, that we do begin as babies in the Christian life, that we're immature and we have a great deal to learn, but where it ends is the real problem. It's making a case that there are those who are truly saved, and I quote, they are born into the family of God, but who never develop spiritually, they are carnal Christians. In other words, there are those who are justified through faith in Christ, but that justification essentially leaves them in an infantile state with no capacity or interest 
or intrigue at all in growing in Christ's likeness. No, they remain as babies. They never develop spiritually. They are carnal Christians. They're justified, but they never take one step towards sanctification, even a baby step in their entire lives. And the implication is you dare not question their salvation because they are, quote, in the family of God. Can I tell you that the Bible knows nothing, brothers and sisters, of that mindset? And neither did the Apostle Paul. And it is the great concern of every shepherd, it is a concern of every shepherd at this church that you never be confused about that fact. That somehow you perceive your life as in Christ because you raised a hand, walked an aisle, signed a card, somehow made some sort of profession of faith, but your life gives no indication that there was ever new life in you, that there was no drive on your part to know Christ or to be conformed to his image whatsoever, the Bible would say to you, you have many reasons to be concerned about the state of your soul. Jesus told a parable about four soils, didn't he? The first soil, the seed, which is the word, simply fell upon the the hard ground and the birds of the air came and plucked it away and that person never received the truth and never grew. They were lost and they were condemned. There was a second soil which received the word eagerly, Jesus said, and it sprouted up quickly, but it had no depth of soil. It was growing on a, on a, on a plateau of shallow soil. The roots could not go deep, and therefore when the heat of the sun came along, when persecution came along, when people went, my, you're a little different. That plant also withered, and it perished. And then there was a third soil, and that tree grew up, that plant grew up, its roots seemed to go deep, and it looked like it was very promising that somewhere in the near future that plant would in fact bear fruit. But it did not. The worries and concerns of the world, which are the weeds in the, in the parable, come up and choke that plant out, and it too perished and was cast into the fire. There is the seed that fell on the fourth soil. And that plant grew up, and it grew up strong, and it ended up producing what? Fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. And the point of the parable is this. Which soil are you? Because the first three are not in heaven. The first three did not know Christ. The first three, even though the second two you know, sprouted up and had some kind of reaction to the word of God. They, they, they looked at Jesus and they thought, there's the answer. It was only temporary and it was never borne out that they were in fact converted, that they were good trees, that they produced good fruit. Jesus was not blowing smoke when he said, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and there are many who enter by it who are heading to hell, to destruction. And some of you go, Dave, 
there you go again with all that hyperbolic speech. Listen, that is not hyperbole. It is good to be warned of these things. Brothers and sisters, are you pursuing the kingdom of heaven? Are you seeking to know Christ and to be conformed to his image? Because a fruitless life is a perishing life. And a life that manifests no likeness to Christ is a stunted life at best. The way is narrow and that path is challenging to find and there are few who find it, Jesus says. Brothers and sisters, take these words seriously and let us learn from the Apostle Paul There will be many on that day who will say to him, Lord, Lord, and he will say, depart from me, I never knew you, you who practices your pattern of life, lawlessness. It is the heart's desire of every true shepherd of Christ's flock to want to see his people, their people, Christ's people, complete in Christ and pressing on on so that you may lay hold of that for which you were laid hold of. Let's continue to look this morning at the heart of a true convert by way of the Apostle Paul. We're going to pick up right away off in verse 12 of Philippians chapter 3. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus Lord, this is your word, and we are unable in and of ourselves to grasp it, to understand it, Lord, to gain and appropriate it apart from the illuminating work of your spirit. And so we do ask, Lord, that you would give us insight that with it we may grow with respect to salvation, that we might grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you say, fine, Paul, you go ahead then. You strive away, my friend. I can tell you're, you're, you're a zealous man. You go for it in the Christian life. You could look at this, couldn't you, these things that Paul has written and say, all right, Paul, I'm glad that's what you do. Look down quickly to verse 15. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. This is for us. Paul is essentially saying, follow me. You imitate me. This is for us. This is for you. And I want to this morning, just from these few verses, give you three principles for pursuing the goal that God has for your life. Three principles for pursuing the goal that God has for your life. If you are going to run the race of faith, you must first acknowledge that you are not yet what you should be. 
You must acknowledge that you are not yet what you should be. Verse 12, Paul says, not that I have already obtained. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect. Now, why does he start off here with this discussion of perfection? Well, you'll remember that this is verse 12 in chapter 3, and there's been a lot of discussion through the first 11 verses. And in context, Paul is speaking of perfection in all likelihood because everything is flowing up and out of verse 1, where Paul said, look, I want you to rejoice in the Lord, and I'm writing what I'm going to write to you so that I might safeguard you from this errant doctrine of the Judaizers, these dogs, as he calls them, three times in verse 2. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. Well, why? Why do we have to beware of these people? Well, because they were preaching that Christ was not enough and that you had to be perfected by the Mosaic law. Flip back to the left to the book of Galatians and the third chapter. Galatians in chapter 3. He says, you foolish Galatians. He rebukes them. Who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Paul had preached to this church and he had upheld the Lord Jesus Christ and the true gospel to them. And he wants to know, he he accuses them here of foolishness. So he says, verse 2, This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit? In other words, were you saved by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, he says, having begun by the Spirit that you are now seeking to be perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain. And he goes on to continue to press the issue and to remind them that salvation is by grace through faith alone in Christ alone and by works of the law shall no flesh be justified or sanctified. And so these men were pressing on the Philippians that it was good to turn to Jesus, but you must add to Jesus, Moses, and if you really want to grow and be perfected, you need to add the Mosaic uh, rites and requirements. It was in law-keeping that you could become complete in Christ. And if you think about it, this was the very thing that the Pharisees were doing by emphasizing certain laws and certain things and, and, and defining them in such a way that it all became manageable for them. You want to keep the Sabbath day holy? Fine. Just don't crack an egg. Just don't look in a mirror. You might be tempted to pluck out a gray hair. Don't, don't walk over 1,500 and whatever. I don't even remember how many steps there were. They had just defined everything down to the nitty-gritty. Why? Because it made it attainable. It made it manageable. 
If you were the Apostle Paul and you had a lot of zeal, you could pull this stuff off and you could look squeaky clean from the outside, which is why Paul says, as as to the law, I, I was blameless. All you had to do was be born into the right family and be raised with the right heritage and engage in the right activities and you could accomplish enough to be able to look at men and say, look, I'm there. And Paul says, hypothetically, I was the man. I was the man. Back in Philippians, he said, I might even have reason to have confidence in the flesh. If anyone has mind to put confidence in the flesh, verse 4, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is found in the law, I was found blameless. Paul had everything that the Judaizers were selling. He had his checklist and he had checked them all off. And he comes to the conclusion that I look at all of that stuff that I thought was beneficial, that I thought was profitable, that I thought recommended me to God and to man, and I look at it all now and I see that it's mere dung. It's rubbish. I've abandoned it all. I could not get to God on the road called law. I had to get to the law or get to God on the road of grace and through faith in Christ. It's the only way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And Paul had to get on the way. And so he abandoned that former life and it was Christ that he wanted to be found in and it is Christ that he seeks to know and it is Christ that he is pursuing. And so Paul asserts right from the very get-go that he has not already attained perfection but what and that's easy for us to affirm right we we know nobody's perfect we we get that but what might be challenging for us and what might be easy for us to overlook is the fact that he is eagerly seeking to actually obtain that very perfection of which he speaks do you see that he says i haven't obtained it yet Paul wants to grow, in the words again of 2 Peter, he wants to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He would never look at his life and say, I am content to be an infantile Christian. I want to grow up to maturity. I want to grow up to be like my Savior. That's the end goal anyway, is to be perfect in him and one day we will receive that but until then I am going to strive forward in fact he says I press on that word means to pursue or to put to flight it's often translated uh, I persecute by implication what is persecution you're putting people to flight (laughs) right I I, I pursue, I put to flight, I chase after, I'm going for it, Paul says. It's used with a sense to move rapidly and decisively and intentionally toward a goal. 
Paul is, throughout this section, using one of his favorite analogies of the Christian life, namely a runner in the Greek games. And he's using that language throughout. This, this word, pressing on, is, is tied into it's the idea of pursuing something swiftly, earnestly, intentionally. Other language, in, in verse 13, he talks about reaching forward to what lies ahead. In verse 14, he's talking about pursuing a goal. And that is a word that refers to a finishing post in the ancient games. His eyes were fixed on that. There's a prize, of course, to be attained in verse 14. So Paul's looking at his life, and the imagery that's going through his mind is this idea of a runner. And he's picturing his life in Christ as a foot race. That might bring to your memory 1 Corinthians 9.24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Think about it, brothers and sisters. This is a man who has been in Christ for upwards of 30 years at this point. He is not retired and waiting for his all-expense-paid trip to glory. He is a runner who is chasing after it with all that he has. He is not content in his Christian experience. He is not content to be named among the inhabitants of heaven. Paul had gained Christ. He had found Christ, or better yet, Christ had found him. And therefore, he stood eternally justified before God. He was saved, and he knew it. He was certain of it. He was confident that Christ was able to, 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 to carry him to the uttermost. All that Paul had entrusted to him, he knew Jesus was faithful. He'd been made perfect positionally. But he had not achieved his goal practically. He was still not what he should be. He was saved. And here's the point that I really want you to see, but he was not satisfied. He was not content to be a spiritual sloth. He wants to grow. It's as if Paul looked at it and he says, I want, to be, I want to gain Christ. I want to be found in Christ. I want to be made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. I want to be justified. And that he found through faith in Christ. And in verse 11, he talks about the resurrection, and clearly this is in the context then of his glorification out here. And so he looks at this block of time. He does not know how long it will be. But he looks at it and he says, it's a race. It's a race from here to here. I'm here in the starting gates at the point of my regeneration of my spiritual birth, and now I'm out of the blocks and I am on my way to a glorified end. But how am I going to conduct myself in this window of time? White picket fence? A lazy boy? Weekends in a bed and breakfast? Another 18 holes? 
I like to pick on golf because all my golfing friends out here always come back to me like, hey. I got the mic. Why couldn't I say, no, just kidding. Here, here, here's the thing. Alistair Begg is right. Golfing is a godly sport because nothing will promote your sanctification quicker than the game of golf. Here, here, here's the thing. Paul was not satisfied to simply throw his head back and his feet up and call it a day and chase the entertainments of this world and all of its lusts, seeking pleasure after pleasure, seeking to, to suck every last ounce of the pleasure of this life and, and worldly pursuits, and, and then to be able to add heaven to it all at the end. And yet that, that, beloved, if we're honest, marks so many who profess faith in Christ in our day. He says, I have not obtained perfection, nor have I become perfect. And when he says that, the dynamic really is twofold in the text. Paul says, initially, speaking of his own personal efforts, I have not already obtained it. I'm seeking it, but I have not obtained it by my efforts. I have not arrived. I still have room to grow spiritually, Paul says. And then he changes tensions. And he says, look, or have become, already become perfect. He uses a, a passive tense there. He is now the recipient of a work of another, namely God himself. And he says that I haven't come all the way to what God has for my life. He's looking back, isn't he, back to chapter 1 and verse 6, that verse that all of us treasure, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it. There's our word. Will perfect it in the day of Christ Jesus. And really the dynamic that's highlighted in this text takes us back to, a, to another chapter, chapter 2 and verse 12 and 13. You remember these words, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we're involved in this thing. We're not riding a train to heaven. We've been called to a race. And we've been called to run. Brother and sister, if you are in Christ this morning, you are called to be an athlete. You're called to get engaged and to pursue Christ. I have not obtained it, and God has not accomplished it yet in me. So we've established two facts before we move on here from this first verse. One. Paul has not arrived at his goal, but he is striving toward it. Nowhere in Paul's mindset do we find a passive contentment in immaturity. He is aware that he is not all that he should be. He wants to arrive at God's calling, and he is striving to get there with all of his might. Now, secondly, you must understand that you were saved with a particular end in mind, and I hope that you'll take this to heart, that you'll understand this, that you'll see this. 
You were saved with a particular end in mind. And most people say, most Christians say, yeah, he did. He saved me to the end that I might know the joy of heaven and be spared the terrors of hell. And amen, that is true. That is a glorious truth. But if that's all that you have seen in God's great salvation, you have a very stunted view of what he is doing in saving you. All of us glory at the thought of heaven. All of us breathe an eternal and giant sigh of relief that we have been spared bearing the wrath of God for all eternity, for our sins justly. All of us rejoice at the reality of being in the presence of the Lord and with one another to worship and to glory in him forever and ever. But understand there's more to your salvation than that. What do you mean? Well, let's develop it a bit. Paul goes on in verse 12. He's, he says, but I press on. I haven't accomplished it. God hasn't yet accomplished it in me. But I do press on that I may lay hold of that for which I also, for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Now let's begin at the end of that verse. Do you see that last phrase, I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus? That is salvation language. Paul's conception of his own salvation was not that somehow he was drawn to want to be near God and wanted to be saved and, and be with God eternally and therefore he turned away from his pharisaical ways. No, his conception of his salvation is that he had been acted upon and laid hold of by Christ. Paul says, I, I was a deceived Pharisee. I was a self-righteous Pharisee and I was ignorantly persecuting the church of Christ and I was heading to eternal judgment and condemnation until Christ reached down and he dramatically stopped me. You remember that? Again, back to Acts 9. You see, Paul was not pursuing the knowledge of Christ. Paul was not pressing on toward the goal. Paul was pursuing his own righteousness. He was pursuing his own goodness. He had goals of advancing in pharisaical legalism beyond all of his countrymen. And he lived in a culture, didn't he, when a lot of value was placed on religious attainment. And he was going to be somebody in that culture. He was going to be excellent in mosaic attainment. Top of his class. Paul was heading that way. Christ broke in and turned Paul around and he heads exactly the opposite direction. Rather than seeking a righteousness of my own through the law, I now am looking for a righteousness which comes from somebody else and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see the change in Paul's life? And that change happened to him because Christ laid hold of Paul. If you were to ask the Apostle Paul for his testimony, he wouldn't begin with, well, I did. He would begin with this. Divine initiative. God took mercy on me. Christ had mercy on me. God manifested his grace toward me. Jesus, I was going one way. Jesus reached down. He said, no, you don't. You're mine. 
This word laid hold, it's used really four times in this text in one form or another. In verse 12, it's translated obtain. And then twice more in verse 12, it's called lay hold. In verse 13, it's used again as lay hold. But I would suggest that that is way too timid a translation in English. It's a much more assertive term than that. The term really is to take aggressively, to seize hold, to arrest, or to capture. Listen to how it's used. In, in Mark 9.18, it's used of a demon who seizes a young boy and possesses him and casts him to the ground and then casts him into the water. It's assertive. John 8.4, it's used of the woman who was, quote, caught in adultery. And she was brought before Jesus, you remember, thinking that somehow he would, he would condemn her. 1 Thessalonians 5.4, it's used of a thief who breaks into a house of an unsuspecting person in the middle of the night and accosts them. It's translated overtakes the unsuspecting victim. Paul uses it in that verse I read earlier from 1 Corinthians 9.24, run the race so that you may win. Same word. Go take the prize. It's up there and only one person's getting it. Go get it. And so Paul says, look, I was seized, I was captured, I was apprehended by Christ, and I was apprehended by him, get this, for a purpose. Go back to the verse, I press on so that I may, note this, lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ. Paul is seeking to assertively lay hold of something, isn't he? And he calls it that. That for which also I was laid hold of by Christ. In other words, there was a reason that Jesus had saved Paul. And Paul himself is aggressively seeking to seize that thing that Christ had seized him for. The end, really, for, for, for what Christ had, had saved him. Beloved, you were saved for a purpose. There was a particular mind in, in God. Now, what is it? What is that end? What is that thing that Paul is seeking so earnestly after? Well, let, let's flip back just by way of reminder to the book of Ephesians. Go back to your left one book. And chapter 1 and verse 3. The question is, why did God save you? And we could turn to many passages to answer that question, but I want you to see it plainly, really, in a couple of passages. This one first. Ephesians 1 and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. There are blessings, some of them which we are enjoying now in part, but there are many things yet still that will come because of our confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ that are reserved for us in heaven, says Peter. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, we are heading upward, we are heading to heaven. That is one of the reasons you were saved, but that wasn't the end of it, verse 4, just as he, 
God the Father chose us, God the Son, in him. He chose us. God chose us in Christ. Why? Before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Do you see that there's more to the purpose here of your salvation than simply getting to heaven? But you have been saved that you might be holy and blameless before him. God's saving work is always accompanied, always accompanied by his sanctifying work. They come in the same package. Listen to 1 Peter 1, 2. Christians are described as those who, quote, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, get this, by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, we're taught the same thing. We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation, here we go, through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this that he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory or the likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Keep going back to the book of Romans. One more passage just to, just to prove it to you. Romans in the eighth chapter. In the 29th verse. For those whom he foreknew, again, do you see it? Everyone starts in eternity past. Every one of these verses have begun with what God has done for us in Christ from eternity past. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. There was a destination. It was settled in advance that we would what? There it is. He also predestined. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, and these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Again, we're, we're heading to that glorious end. But in the meantime, what is God calling you to? Well, he's calling you to conformity to Christ. That's what Paul is speaking about in this passage. That he might know Christ, that he might have an experiential knowledge of Christ, that that relationship with Christ, as, as Paul beheld him, beheld him in the word, beheld him in prayer, beheld him in fellowship among the saints, as he beheld Christ in the circumstances of his life, working out that salvation in him, that Paul himself would, would become so acquainted with the Lord that he would grow in knowledge and grace so that he would behold him and, yes, even become like him. You see, salvation is not just to give you eternal life in heaven. It's not just freedom from eternal punishment. It's about knowing Christ and it's about living with Christ in a vital relationship. Marriage is not just about 
wearing a ring on your finger. Marriage is not just about a contract. Marriage is not just about dwelling in a house together. Marriage is not just about being able to have babies and start a family. Marriage is about a relationship, isn't it? Between two people. So it is with salvation. It is a relationship between you, the sinner, redeemed by Christ, the Savior, and you were incorporated into him and you were brought into relationship with him and you have the spirit of Christ within you and you are seeking, like the apostle Paul, to grow in the likeness of Christ and in the knowledge of him. You see, that, that, that's the whole thing. God saved you that you might be a child of his who reflects his likeness. That's the blueprint. You see, by the death and resurrection of Christ, those who the Father chose were made alive by the Spirit, and those who were once spiritually dead then came to believe the gospel. Yes, so that we could be in heaven, but also, yes, that you would be saved from sin. And when we hear those words, we think, yeah, exactly, I'm saved from my sin, so I can go to heaven. But salvation from your sin takes on a, a greater breadth than that. You are saved, yes, from the consequences of sin's penalty, but salvation through faith in Christ also sets you free from enslavement to its power over you. So that now you can say no to sin and yes to righteousness in your life. And beyond that, ultimately, Christ's salvation is going to save us from any of the polluting presence of sin when we get to our eternal home. And all of this, that we might be the children of God and as such be like him, not only dwelling forever in his household, but also wholly like him in his character. We are saved by Christ, we seek to know Christ, and we are changed from one glory to the next and to his likeness. And all of this is the goal of God in apprehending you in salvation. Beloved, this, this is why we cannot embrace the doctrine of the carnal Christian. God is at work in his children to conform them to the image of his son. Every one of them. Every one of them. Which is why in Hebrews 12 it says, without this sanctifying grace in your life, no one will see the kingdom of heaven. carnal Christian is an oxymoron and it is utterly in opposition to all of God's saving purposes. Can a man and a woman, a child, be justified and still have no inclination toward holiness whatsoever? 
Can a man, a woman, a child profess faith in a savior by the name of Jesus Christ and yet they will not have him as Lord to rule over them? Can you say, I love you, Lord, and yet not keep his commandments? Or did Jesus say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments? Not perfectly. But you see, there's a heart change that happens so that now your inclination is to honor the Lord in obedience. You just want to be like your heavenly father. You now have a taste. You have an acquired taste for righteousness that you did not have before you knew Jesus. You see, we are saved to be holy. And those whom Christ saves, he also sanctifies. And this is the crystal clear message of the Bible. Now, let's look back at the text. And I want you with me as Paul, as we, we, we come to the rest of this and we'll move a little more quickly, but Paul here is conceptualizing again his life, the believer's life, this race between justification and glorification as a runner. And here he is, he's darted out from the, the starting blocks decades ago. He's still running the race with endurance. He's still seeking to run in such a way as to win. And I know Paul uses the, 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 the analogy in 1 Corinthians 9 saying, look, only one gets the prize. Uh, heaven is going to be very sparsely populated if we press that analogy too far. Yes? There'll be more than one in the kingdom of heaven. His point is, you need to be going for it and you ought to be seeking to run as fast as you can, as efficiently as you can, as excellently as you are able in the power of God, by the grace of God, toward that end as if only one. We're going to get there. Jonathan Edwards, right, didn't he, didn't he say, supposing there are only to be one person on earth who is most like Christ, who is most accomplished in the Christian faith. I endeavor, I strive, I resolve to be that man. That ought to be the Christian's heart. That ought to be your heart. You might draw an analogy from the Western States Endurance Run because everyone who runs that, and there are hundreds every year who start in Squaw Valley, end at Placer High School, it's 100 miles in summer heat, at the heights of Squaw Valley to the depths of, of the lowest areas around the American River. It goes from really cold to really hot. It's one of the toughest endurance races in the world. The only deal is you gotta show up under 24 hours. But everyone who makes it under 24 gets the buckle. Paul says, look, you're in an endurance run and you're running and you need to press on. You cannot worry about stumbling in the snow or the heat that you're gonna face. You just gotta continue to press on toward the goal, and he acts here as a coach who is seeking to help us who are in his footsteps to, to complete the race, to run the race well. There's a goal in this race. It's to know Christ. It's to be like him. You haven't attained that goal, nor have I, but you've got to keep pressing on, Paul says. Now, how do we do that? And that's our third point this morning. You must give careful attention and intense effort to the attainment of the end goal. You must give careful attention and intense effort to the attainment of the end goal. Verse 13, Paul says, brethren, 
You hear the encouragement in that, by the way? We're all in this together. Brothers, brothers and sisters, we, we, we are running together as a team. 2 Timothy 2.22, now flee youthful lusts, pursue righteousness. There's that word again, to pursue faith, love, and peace. But I love this, with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. This is a team sport. We're running together. We're encouraging one another along the way. Paul says again, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it, but one thing. The I do has been added there if you have New American Standard. But one thing. Paul says, I'm not at the finish line yet. I haven't laid hold of it, but I have no room for complacency, no room for sloth, for indolence. No, I'm going to conduct myself like a disciplined athlete. I have one thing before me. I'm single-minded. I'm focused. I'm concentrating on the task. I remember hearing an interview of Michael Jordan. Most of you are old enough to remember him. I'll never forget what he said. He, he, he was asked what it was that separated him from the rest of the players in the NBA. Now, there are more than one answer to that question, but I was intrigued with the question or the answer that he gave. Here, here was his answer. You want to know what separates me from everybody else? He says, this is it. I'm task-focused. He says, I am intensely task-focused. I was surprised by that. He said, I have the ability to fix my full attention on one task at a time. I don't get distracted by what happened back there. I don't get distracted by thoughts of who will win this game. I am fixed and I am focused on one thing. The task at hand at any given time in a basketball game. Am I shooting a ball? Then I'm going to focus on making the shot. Am I rebounding? Then I'm going to go get it with both hands. Am I playing defense? Then I'm going to be in a stance and ready to guard. Did I travel? I can't think about that. I've got to get on to the next task. Now I've got to go play defense. You see, he knew how to harness his energies and draw them in and focus like a racehorse down the, down the court. This is what Paul is saying. I haven't laid hold of it yet, but one thing. This is the intensity of of Paul's focus, his concentration. Look at what he says. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Here is Paul's race strategy. His one thing really is comprised of three things. You ready? Here they are. I forget, I reach, and I pursue. That's what he did. You want to know my race strategy? You want to know how you win this race? You forget, you reach, and you pursue. He forgets what lies behind. Every athlete knows this. Every athlete knows this. That that to look back is the surest way to slow yourself down and to get yourself past My son was visiting last night, and I was reminded, meditating on this text as I was looking at him, that when Susie and I would take him as a young boy to to buy him new tennis shoes, maybe your kids have done this, we'd strap him up in those things, and you could just see that sense of, like, new shoes. And he would 
I'd, I'd, I'd always tell him, hey, just go run over there and run back. And he'd run, but he'd always look back to see if he could sort of catch in his shadow how glorious his running form was in these shoes. <laughs> Don't tell him I said that. Paul says, look, I forget what lies behind. Like a good runner, I'm not consumed with whether I I had a good start or a bad start. I'm not focused on what I saw on lap two. I'm not worried about how much ground I've covered or whether I stumbled along the course. I'm not too consumed about the whereabouts of my opponents as I hear them. I'm just trying to go as hard and fast as I can. I saw a video recently of a, a, a young runner, a young girl who was in a track event and she was, I don't know, could not have been 10, probably eight years old, somewhere in there. The gun went off and she bolted out so fast she ran out of her shoe. And the rest of the crowd just took off and left her in the dust. And she patiently knelt down, put her shoe back on and got to running. And she passed one and then two, and before you know it, she wins by by four lengths. You see, it it was no no imposition to her. I I can't be too worried about whether whether my shoe came off or not. I've got to go. And she threw the thing back on, and she went. This is Paul. I don't cling to my accomplishments, says Paul, I don't congratulate myself for my spiritual attainments, whatever they may be. That was yesterday. Now hear me. Neither does Paul allow himself to be derailed by the sins of his past. He doesn't remember and cling to and and dwell upon his failures and defeats, whatever they may be. Paul doesn't, on the one hand, rest on his laurels. He's not living in the glory days. (laughs) Again, it's just, you always have to think, this is Paul writing this. Think about it, beloved. Here he was, apprehended by Christ. Paul was taught by Christ. Paul was extended the right hand of fellowship as an apostle. He was an evangelist who had seen many come to Christ through his ministry. He had planted churches. He had suffered persecution. He had written the Bible. And still, he is not looking back at the things that he had accomplished. Neither is he hindered by vain regrets. He puts all of that out of his mind and he gives his full concentration to, secondly, reaching forward to what lies ahead. This is that image of of the runner straining who is extending the neck and chest to try and extend and, and reach out for that tape to get there first. He's leaning to the tape. He keeps his head level And he's trained his eye to the goal and he keeps his eye fixed on that goal with very narrow focus and he's he's striving forward, striding forward, reaching forward and seeking to do it as, as diligently as he can. And then thirdly, he says, I press on. 
I forget what lies behind. I reach toward the goal. I press on toward the goal of what is ahead of me. This press on is the same word we saw in verse 12. To move rapidly and decisively after something. And when he says he he pressed on toward the goal, that word goal is skapos. It's, it's the end marker of a foot race in the ancient games. Today we would call it a finish line. He, he had his eye fixed on that goal. We get the English word scope from it. it. We would take it this way, that Paul had the finish line in his crosshairs. He stayed focused on the target. And so here Paul lays out this all-absorbing effort with all that he is, mind, soul, strength, all of it, striving forward, stretching out, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what's ahead, pressing on, running full steam ahead for what? The goal which he calls the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. God had called the Apostle Paul as God calls every believer. And it's an upward call. You're heading somewhere. You were saved, yes, to attain to a place. But you were also saved to know a person. And Paul says, I am striving forward to attain that prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus when Paul would finally see realized all that he had pursued in this life. It is there and then that I will see the full realization of what I am seeking now, and that is that I will be made into the likeness of my Savior. Look at John, 1 John chapter 3. We'll close with this passage. 1 John. Chapter 3. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called the children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. What's he saying? We're so much in his likeness. <laughs> we think so differently. Our lives are characterized by a godliness of life. Remember, grace is a teacher that teaches us to live godly in this present age. They don't know us. They don't understand us. And he says, beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. That great day of conformity to Christ's likeness awaits each one of us. None of us has arrived yet at perfection. But the day is coming, beloved. But you see, verse 3, he comes back to the idea of sanctification again. Look at what he says. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Christ, what? Purifies himself. Seeks to live a sanctified life just as Jesus is pure. 
You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins as their pattern of life. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure that no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. May I ask you as we wrap up, are you consumed with a passion to know Christ and to be like him still more and more? Are you striving and straining, forget what lies behind, but pressing on toward the upward call? I know you sinned. I get it. God knows. He's forgiven it. Confess it. Repent. Turn. But get up and get going. Move in the direction of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And, and be sanctified in life, beloved. Keep making progress. Keep running. He has called you. He pre has predestined you to be like Christ in holiness of life. We must keep our eyes fixed on that goal and pursue that goal until the day when we see him face to face. Beloved, may we press on toward the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus Let's pray. Lord, these things are clear. Your word is not sparse. Your word is not uh, beyond understanding. Lord, these things are plain, that you have saved us, that we might be a people for your own possession, that we might declare your excellencies by the things that we speak to be sure, but Lord, by the orderliness, the fruitfulness, the godliness, the Christ-likeness of our lives, we pray for that. We ask that you would bear forth fruit and all the more abundantly and all of it to your glory. In Christ's name, amen.